Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Prepared Corp CEO Alex Vesna says the reality of emergency planning is nobody wants to talk about it. Labatt's Michelle Tam has a few fun suggestions for pairing all sorts of foods with your favorite beer. And the Greater Vancouver Food Bank COO Cynthia Bolter tells us how food banks are changing to more fresh foods wherever possible. So let's get started. Here's a quote from our next guest. Quote, my rule of thumb is that I have four hours of people's time to complete an emergency plan for them if I'm lucky. Not four months, four weeks, or four days. For most people and organizations, assuming they give emergency planning any thought at all, they'll start to lose interest after four hours of outlining a plan for them at most. This under the headline, Emergency Planning Requires Speed and Competence. The latest column from Alex Vesna, CEO of Prepared Corporation, Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University in Toronto, and a good friend of this program. Alex, good morning. Welcome back and Merry Christmas to you. Good morning. Welcome back. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. I was going to ask what you celebrate, but I suppose we're doing Christmas. Uh, yes, uh, but we we're just talking about weather uh, realities here. Our Christmas dinner has been put off. We're supposed to get together uh, at, 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 at our daughter's place, and it's just not going to be possible. So uh, a, f- a little scrambling going on. Uh, not exactly an emergency in that sense, Alex, but yes, uh, definitely pivoting on the fly. Let's talk about emergency planning as you see it and as you do it for, uh, for your, your life's work, your career. How, why are, are, are companies people and organizations so reluctant to deal with emergency planning? Uh, There's actually uh, quite a few answers to that question. It's actually a really interesting topic. One of the most studied things that is focused on in emergency planning, uh, disaster risk reduction, business continuity, and these fields that deal with uh, extreme events and how to handle them is Mm -hmm. how to get people to get involved in it at all. Um, because uh, people are very resistant to it. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a few of the reasons and then a, a book that people can uh, can look at reading uh, because okay. uh, there's actually a really short book on it. Um, that's a pretty quick read. So uh, people tend to overestimate um, positive risk and underestimate negative risk. Um, people tend to think they're going to win the lottery um, more so than they think they're going to be in a car accident or a motor vehicle collision. So that's an example. Right. Uh, but people in general tend to overestimate positive risk and underestimate negative. Um, and that leads to, well, the bad thing isn't going to happen here. Canada in general um, also is probably one of the, if not the safest places to live in the world. Uh, so we have some uh, things that are reinforcing our um, uh, bad things don't happen here. And Canadians tend to brush off a lot of events that in other countries would be catastrophic, like our, our right. winters are in, in, in particular, are not normal around the world, uh, but we just have, have gotten used to it. But So there's a book um, that looks at, at this and other things like uh, uh, issues with myopia or optimism uh, and like unhealthy optimism as opposed to good old healthy optimism uh, called The Ostrich Paradox. That um, is it's the paradox how ostriches... Uh, hide their heads in the, in the ground, except they don't yeah. really. Humans tend to do it. Uh, that was written by uh, quite a few people that are high up in um, FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Association of the United States, part of their Department of Defense. 
Uh, anyways, the ostrich paradox actually goes into about five to eight different reasons as to why people do this, and it's like 200 pages or less, and it's a little like you can put it in your and, pocket. And so, could, one of, could one of the other reasons, as, as you apply specifically to Canadians, be our sort of innate cheapness <laughs> and a reluctance to spend money on something we find it easy to imagine not really happening in the first place? Um, I wouldn't necessarily uh, think of it that way. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't view Canadians as um, uh, generally um, cheap. Uh, I view us as wanting to do something second, I think, is the more predominant issue. You see it in investment. You see it in um, making decisions in general. We want somebody else to pay the R&D so that we can do it um, in a more cost-effective way. Right. And it's a phenomenon that actually happens um, like if like going on uh, Canadians being cheap, uh, kind of everybody is. Um, you most people specialize in doing what their business is really really good at. They don't spend a lot of time uh, focusing on uh, the bad times or what what could happen. They're just really really focused on doing that, uh, which is why the big focus around all of the risk and emergency and continuity services um, that that we've developed and prepared have been around making things as cost-effective as possible. We've tried right. to take the 500-page um, plan that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars that a team of non-specialists, frankly, could usually come in and do, and we've gotten it down to less than a five-figure number in a fraction of the time with greater effectiveness. And it takes a lot of expertise to do that, and you kind of have to, instead of having one big client that pays your bill, you've got to have you know, 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 uh, but you can get a lot more done in a lot less time, and you kind of just trim the fat, frankly, because there's a lot of fat uh, in a lot of these plans that is just unnecessary. As an example, right. actually, to bring this up, BP oil for the, uh, the the spill that happened in the Gulf of Mexico, and this is mm-hmm. widely widely known in the field, um, had a, a contingency plan for walruses for the Gulf of Mexico and their plan. Oh. Yeah, there's no walruses in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm just going to say that's a, a little uh, geographically impossible now, isn't it? Yeah, there's then there's just weird stuff that takes ten, like sometimes tens to fifty pages of these plans that could be four pages and be way more effective, where you just get more people involved and they learn better. It's a long it's a longer conversation, but but yeah, there's like a lot of things that if you have somebody who's done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plans that really is, has come into the pitfalls before, talked to people before, and is used to this. If you have, you know, an expert that knows what they're doing, um, you can do a lot in very little time and stop wasting people's time and money. Yeah. And speaking of that, uh, are you tax deductible? A professional like yourself at Prepared Corporation or any other emergency planning experts, if you go into a company and present that four-hour package or whatever, are your costs to that company uh, a write-off? Uh, it can be. It depends. Um, and actually, one thing we're working on is trying to get uh, the provincial and federal job grants that apply to certain health and safety training to also apply to emergency planning or continuity planning um, with like an 80-20 split uh, so that they can you actually just get a grant for it. We're trying to get that done too because uh, it turns out with a lot of these things like the uh, in, in the Ontario case, the Ontario Federal Canada Job Grant, um, you can't get funding if an if a leader, really, if a C-suite, et cetera, is in the room, it has to all be workers. And oh. you can't do emergency planning, really, unless someone who does strategic decision-making is in the room. Of course. Uh, so there's just there's, there's little things that we're looking at. And it depends on how you're structured and the way your taxes are in your area. Um, many times, yes. But that's like 
we, we, none of these consultations for initial phone talks to find out if it applies to you cost any money. So if you, if you want to kind of work that out, just call me. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so back to the back to the notion of being receptive to the idea of emergency planning and the reluctance associated with that and the glazing over of the eyes after four hours into the project so that the pressure really comes back to you, doesn't it? If you know that you're only going to get a very limited amount of time and attention from this group, even though they've invited you and are paying for your services, they're still, their eyes are still going to glaze over quickly. So the pressure really is on you to get the job done and get the message across to them effectively and quickly, isn't it? Yeah, and actually it's more than that. Um, the, the reality is that if, if once, once I get, get somebody, uh, usually their eyes are not going to glaze over after four hours, but I know that it's, you know, if we've agreed on four hours, it's going to be four hours anyways. Uh, but... A lot of companies uh, and people in general just will not entertain the idea of losing more than half of a day to anything. Right. They just won't. They just it, 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 it's an intolerable loss to them. They they say think of all the emails I could that all the I could have done all the customers I could have gained et cetera in those four hours. It's not worth it to me. Is their initial response. Um, but yeah, no, it comes back down to the uh, the expert. It comes back down to the person doing the service and um, talking to people about the bad thing happening and working through some pretty high-level planning um, in a, on a quick timetable and making it so most of the um, really tough intellectual weight is on the is not being pushed onto the client too much is a uh, because they don't have experience in the area that's why they've called you in sure <laughs> right um, is uh, not an easy skill set to learn it also requires some pretty high-level facilitation skills, which we don't really teach much in the professional world or especially in schools these days. Hmm. Like facilitation is not easy for people to do. So it's it's not easy to learn how to do that either. A lot of teachers don't know how to facilitate. A lot of uh, yeah. faculty and universities don't know how to facilitate. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So yeah, no, the, yeah, there's, there's, there's weight on me and other people like me for sure. Sure. Alex, uh, final question to you. What percentage of Canadian businesses of all sizes, small, medium, and large, actually have an active emergency plan? Um, more than something like an evacuation plan that I would qualify. Yeah. Probably, and especially given how small business, how small many businesses are, less than 5%. Wow. Easy. And that's probably being generous. Interesting and it's not stuff. hard. Well, like it's, it's really not hard. Like four hours and a couple thousand dollars, and it can be done. And like you can have something better than what some large companies have. It's really not mm-hmm. hard. It's a great column. I committed to your reading uh, to our listeners that there are limitations and realities in emergency planning. The headline: Emergency planning requires speed and competence. The author: Alex Vesna, CEO of Prepared Corporation and Emergency and Disaster Management Professor at Toronto's York University. Alex, always a pleasure, sir. We do enjoy your showing up on our program ever so regularly. Merry Christmas to you and yours, and I look forward to our first conversation in twenty. Three already. Uh, same, always pleasure. Likewise, Merry Christmas. Have have a great one. Michelle Tam is joining us from Toronto right now, right now, uh, to talk about holiday-inspired beverage and food pairings. Ms. Tam is a certified Cicerone and head of beer education with Labatt's. Michelle Tam, good morning, Merry Christmas, and welcome to you. Good morning. Happy holidays, Sterling. Well, it's nice to have you with us. First and foremost, please tell us what a certified Cicerone is. 
Well, that's just a very fancy term for somebody who gets to taste a lot of beer. <laughs> but uh, a certified cicerone would be considered the equivalent to what a sommelier is to wine is what a cicerone is to beer. Ah, okay. So a sommelier for wine uh, has to go to take courses and pass exams and uh, uh, demonstrate a clear knowledge of the subject. Clearly, uh, that does that same program and that same process apply to the beer industry as well? Absolutely. So it's the same amount of rigor that would go into being certified as a sommelier, but with a thorough understanding of the ingredients, the process for developing and creating beer, um, all the different styles of beer that exist in the world, how beer pairs well with food, how to best mm. and serve it, and how to just create the most enjoyable, uh, the enjoyable experience for enjoying beer. So you're one of a very few certified Cicerones in Canada. You were the only woman at, at one point in your career. Now there are uh, close to a, a couple of dozen of you with Labatt's across Canada. But still, this is a designation most of us have never heard of. So how new is it? Uh, the program was developed a little over 10 years ago. Uh, at the time when I was certified in 2013, there was uh, around 40. And, uh, and you're correct, I was one of the first females to. But uh, at this point... The interest in beer across the country continues to grow. In fact, Canada is the country that ranks the highest year over year in searching about beer on Google. Uh, and all of that interest uh, into beer, into the brewing process and styles of beer has grown so much that there's now 175 and still growing number of Cicerones in Canada. Interesting. And where does one go to take the exam and all of that kind of thing? Where's the central uh, data bank, if you will, for, for this program? Uh, well, the Cicerone Certification Program started in Chicago, but it is an international organization. They hold exams all around the globe uh, okay. a few times a year here in, in, in the country. Let's talk a little bit about beer and and uh, how it might work with, say, turkey. We just had the Butterball Turkey folks on with us, Michelle, before you joined us after the news. Uh, and uh, yeah. they were talking, of course, about uh, last-minute plans and how things uh, occasionally get turned around and lots of good cooking tips. So now we're talking about pairings. And I know that mm -hmm. you have, for uh, do you have, for example, and, and we, we know how popular beer is with Canadians, and I'm not surprised to hear that we search Google for, for beer more than any other country in the world. But what, what, when we talk turkey dinner, not mm -hmm. a lot of us, I think, initially think about beer as an accompaniment. Someone, you, you usually sort of think about white wine and stuff. So re-educate mm -hmm. us on the matter of beer working with turkey, particularly what type. Uh, certainly. So there's so many different styles of beer. I encourage, especially as we're, we're bringing people together again for the holidays after some time, is to have a variety of different types of beverages. So in addition to having wine in the fridge, as well as beer and non-alcoholic options. And uh, with beer, it's a great accompaniment as well as it's a great cooking ingredient. So as mm -hmm. you're preparing those turkeys or even your roast chicken, you can use beer as part of the brine. The brine is going to help flavor your bird, as well as cut down the cooking time. So uh, you can take uh, uh, your lager of choice, the beer you have in the fridge, you can brine your turkey or your chicken in it. You're going to really bring a lot of the flavor into it. If you're mm. roasting a chicken or a turkey, um, especially if, you're, uh, if you've got a bit of a citrus glaze to it, that's a nice holiday flavor to it. I highly recommend an IPA. A great example of that is Goose Island IPA. It's got a lot of citrus characteristics from the hops, a little bit of pininess. That's going to complement the 
the piney aroma wafting in the air off your tree, as well as the citrus that's in the, in the marinade and the glaze of the dish. So what can you tell us about, uh, just to stay on this uh, beer with turkey mm-hmm. dinner theme for a moment or more, Michelle, mm-hmm. you, you've been at this for a long time and you've, you've, you've uh, mm-hmm. accomplished quite a bit in the process. What can you tell us about Canadians actually having, cracking a beer with their turkey dinner? Uh, it, do we do that in significant numbers? I, I would say it's not extremely common but it is certainly my mission to change that. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would definitely say um, I, part of that experience is, as Canadian as consumers are, are changing and growing is, again, looking for more variety. So your typical person who is only a wine drinker, only a red wine drinker, or only an American lager drinker, that's mm-hmm. changing a lot where right. uh, any day of the week, Somebody could be trying something different. So one day you may be drinking a cider, the next day drinking a seltzer, the next day drinking a beer, the next day drinking a non-alcoholic beer. That's why I'm encouraging that that variety of having lots of different products in the fridge to cater to a lot of different tastes, having those non-alcoholic options available to people. I think that's really important with entertaining as well. Mm Non-alcoholic beer pairs really well too. So um, whether you're having that roast turkey, you're brining with it or pairing with something like a, a pork roast, or even with, if you're having bread stuffing or, 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 um, or dressing, that breadiness that's in that is going to pair really well with the breadiness. Now, beer is made with barley, so it's got a natural bready flavor to it. So True. something like yep. a Budweiser or Budweiser Zero, which is the non-alcoholic option for that, pairs really well with those side dishes. Interesting. And you mentioned cider as well, and that uh, mm-hmm. appears to be enjoying a, a bit of a, a renaissance as well these days. What does cider pair well with in uh, this seasonal time of the year? Oh, well, cider pairs so well with all of those baked uh, uh, baking spices. So the cinnamon, the cloves, if you've got cloves in your ham and that's, that's filling the air with that aroma, if you're making gingerbread with ginger and cinnamon in there those are all the baking spices that we're familiar with pairing with apples which is what cider is made from on top of that that's a great gluten-free option it's one of the reasons why cider has been growing so much in the country is again having all those options for all of your guests you're entertaining for having something that's gluten-free and also pairs really well with the flavors of the season interesting do do most consumers know that cider is gluten-free uh, I would say those who are gluten conscious consumers uh, who are looking for those options uh, I tend to, to gravitate towards cider because it is an available option to them. But on top of that, you don't have to be gluten conscious to right. enjoy cider. It's just delicious on its own. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we've got the Okanagan in our backyard here. We've been kind of Absolutely. kind of familiar with cider for a good long time here in BC. It's nice to see, though, that it uh, it, it seems to be uh, it sort of ebbs and flows, doesn't it? And we seem to be at a flow stage with popularity of cider. Would you agree? Oh, certainly. And Okanagan is a great example of a cider, and they also have a pear version of it as well. Pear mm-hmm. also pairs so well with those baked goods, those holiday baked goods flavors. Think about poached pears and caramel sauce. Pair that with the Okanagan pear cider, and you've got a beautiful pairing there. Interesting stuff. So now, uh, in terms of, uh, and you you represent Labatt's, and they have such a Mm -hmm. wide variety of of labels. Uh, How many Mm -hmm. in-house does Labatt's uh, contain? Um. At this point, I've lost track of the exact number, but range everything from very familiar 
uh, favorites like Budweiser and Bud Light, as well as Stella Artois, European Lager, Corona and Corona Sunbrew. There's still room for that in the holiday season, uh, Sunbrew being a non-alcoholic option with a uh-huh. little dose of vitamin D in there, which I'm sure we can all use during the winter season. Indeed. Well, you mentioned my personal favorite, which is Stella Artois. And I noticed that yeah. uh, some of the notes that I got, you have Stella mm-hmm. Artois paired with Belgian waffles and chocolate sauce. Mm-hmm. Frankly, Michelle, it would never have occurred to me to try and combine those two. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me, and I'll let you know why. Stella okay. Artois, Stella stands for star in Latin. It's actually named for the star of Christmas. It was originally first brewed in, in the 1920s. Uh, as a celebratory Christmas beer. Uh, so when you see that star in Stella, that's referring to the star of Christmas. On top of that, it is the most popular Belgian beer in the world consumed in over 80 countries. So can't think of a better pairing for a Belgian, an iconic Belgian beer than, of course, Belgian waffles. It's going to have that maltiness, that, that, that breadiness of the waffle pairing really well with that malted barley characteristic in Stella, as well as those a little bit of that bitterness that comes from Sot Tops from the Czech Republic, that's going to cut through the sweetness and the richness of the whipped cream and the chocolate sauce. Very interesting. Well, there's a little bit of education for yours truly here. I had no idea that my favorite beer was named after the star of Christmas. How about that? There you go. So, Michelle, when you uh, d- take uh, these situations, you do, you do a lot as you're uh, also the head of education for Labatt's Canada. And you, you get, especially at this time of year, you get a lot of these inquiries about pairings and so on. What do, what do people want to know the most in terms of how to enjoy beer more? I think a lot of it is a curiosity around the, the, the great expansion of styles. Uh, the number one most searched uh, term in beer uh, in Canada is, uh, in terms of beer styles, is the IPA. So it's, it's a lot of people wanting to understand what is an IPA, what makes an IPA taste the way it does, and then how to best enjoy it. So with a beer like an IPA, which is known to be quite assertively bitter, still balanced, it's understanding that you want to pair that with the types of foods that also have a very robust intensity to it. So uh, the IPA pairs really well with some desserts. IPA and carrot cake is a great example because it's sweet. It also pairs really well with curries that have some spice to it. So my rule of thumb is you want to pair bold foods with bold beers, delicate foods with delicate beers. If you follow that rule of thumb, you really can't go wrong. So understanding that, you know, learning more about the IPA, knowing that's a fairly intense style and knowing you want to pair that with some equally bold foods and bold flavors. So can you recommend a website or a, some kind of point of learning where people can go and, and discover more about, for example, delicates versus the heavies and, and which categories uh, are represented by what labels? Does Labatt's have that kind of information available on its website, for example? Certainly. And I invite uh, uh, for those of who are, are on Instagram or on LinkedIn or even on Facebook that there's always fun facts that are being shared on the Labatt Brewery's uh, social channels, um, as well as lots of uh, advice for how to entertain, facts about some of our beers, and as well as how to enjoy responsibly throughout the holidays. Interesting stuff. Well, Michelle, Tham, th- thanks very much for this. We appreciate uh, your time on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's my first conversation with a certified Cicerone, and it's been absolutely delightful. Uh, thanks very much, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, and enjoy responsibly. Thanks. 
So I'm flipping through the Vancouver province the other day, and I see this, and it stops me cold. The headline is, should I stop donating canned goods to the food bank? And I look through the subheader, and the answer is, well, it depends. So, well, we decided we better call the food bank and get a little straight answer from from Cynthia Bolter, who's a good friend of this program, has been with us many times, and it's time for a Christmas update. Cynthia Bolter is the COO of the Vancouver Food Bank. Good morning, Cynthia. Merry Christmas, and welcome back. Thank you. Merry Christmas, Sterling. Well, it's good to have you with us, too, because uh, I, I must say I, I stopped cold when I was flipping through that the other day. Uh, and and it's and as I read the article, basically, it says today's food bank is very different from what it used to be. And it talks about the greater Vancouver food bank, Cynthia, going from 20 percent fresh food to 60 percent fresh food in about a period of less than four years. Tell us more about this amazing transition and why. Well, we really wanted to focus on the quality of food that we were handing out. And we're very aware that people who are struggling with food insecurity, the type of food they can afford is the the cheap, the less expensive, the less nutritious. So we see our role as being here to provide them with the items that come at a higher cost, with higher nutrition, that are generally left out of the grocery cart when you are struggling to pay for groceries and very often that is fresh food so we focus mm-hmm. on on dairy and we focus on eggs and proteins meat proteins non-meat proteins and a lot of produce so we knew that we needed more refrigeration when we moved from vancouver to burnaby uh when we had to move our warehouse uh, we increased our refrigeration by about 400 percent and uh-huh. uh, so we are in a position now to receive virtually any shipment of food that comes from a producer or a retailer. And if we can't use it all, we have now started consistently, we started this uh, really consistently during the pandemic, sharing with other organizations, uh, many of them food banks. And currently, um, for example, we have a partnership with Cisco and they move the food for free and they're taking food to the Lake Country Food Bank, um, two or three pallets of fresh food a week that then can get distributed. So I think food banks as a whole um, are increasing their refrigeration across the country. Mm-hmm. There have been some good government grants, and everyone is really trying to provide more fresh food. For us, in January of 2022, we took a bold stand and said we're not going to accept food drives from the public anymore because right, the quality yeah. of food was so poor that we were getting on the whole. Um, our buying power is stronger than yours or mine at the store. So we at least double the buying power. Um, And it takes volunteers and staff to sort through that food that is at least 30% garbage and spoiled and already opened. And it's just not the quality that we want to share. That's not true for every food bank. So I always just suggest to people, call your food bank, go to their website, see what they need, and then you'll know that you're doing exactly what they need and what helps them. Right. So let's talk about uh, this no food drives policy change that you initiated about a year or so ago, Cynthia. But you also are quick to add, but feel free to conduct a virtual food drive. So what's that all about? The virtual food drive is an online fundraiser and it's really fun, very visual. It can be competitive in a really fun way with other departments where you work with friends, with family And it's a way of raising money 
for the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. It's very easy. There's no waste. (laughs) And it means that we receive funds that we can then turn into the menu items that we put out for our clients every week. We plan about a month ahead with our menus, and we have four additional nutrition programs, all of which the food in there, in all of those programs, we buy all of that food. It's not donated. So doing a virtual food drive is such um, a fantastic way for people to support the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. And then what we found is a lot of corporations will match. So they want to support what their employees support. And if their employees are doing um, a fun drive, a virtual food drive, then they'll say, hey, you know what, whatever you raise, we'll match it. And that's great for everybody. Uh, On the website, you talk about palletized food donations. If you have one, please contact us and you give Alex, Mm -hmm. the manager of operations name and a button to push. What is a palletized food donation, Cynthia? So that is a donation that is going to be coming in from the food industry somewhere. So it is a um, square pallet is a piece of wood, um, sort of a platform of wood that stacks and stacks and cartons and cartons of food. Um, are right. placed on and then wrapped. And this is how food gets moved around um, in large quantities. So uh, we might get five pallets of um, peppers. Uh, we might get 20 pallets of potatoes. We might mm-hmm. get three pallets of yogurt. Um, so that, that's the, the size and scope of the donations we accept. And we accept them from industry because um, we, we know the quality Coming from industry, we have pre-vetted our partners, and we know that this is food. And they understand our food donation um, guidelines as well. So they're not going to give us um, past-dated food or food that isn't uh, nutritious because they know we won't accept it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, so the virtual food drive is a is an excellent way to to assist, to give energy and money uh, to the food bank, and it also keeps the work of the food bank focused on the changing conditions, which are more and more oriented towards providing fresh food where possible. Correct? Yes, that's a great summary. Well done. and how about volunteering before we let you go it's christmas eve and we know uh that uh, the food bank relies heavily on the good uh nature and uh, incredible support of an army of volunteers how does one go about joining so go to our website which is foodbank.bc.ca Um, And on there, we have a a volunteering option right at the top, and you can sign up as an individual or you can sign up as a group. The really great thing is we're seeing more and more groups, um, more and more companies are giving their employees time to volunteer during the day, which is so amazing. And they come to one of our locations in Vancouver or Burnaby or New Westminster, and they volunteer for, you know, three, four hours or up to six hours. And uh, they have an amazing experience. And part of that experience, part of I think why it's so good is the quality of food that we're giving out. They truly feel like they're making a difference because they see the quality of food that is being provided to people who can't afford it. So we are um, ready for new volunteers uh, as of January and um, excited to, to meet some new people. All right. So that address, by the way, if you want to volunteer and you want to sign up, just head to the website. It's foodbank.bc.ca. 
Ca. Cynthia Bolter, COO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for joining us with an update, a very important topic to touch on at a sensitive time of the year. We do appreciate the fine work you do. Keep it up and we'll talk again in 23, Cynthia. Thanks so much. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.